Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, it's Drags, and it's Wednesday, April 10th, time for episode 293 of Patriots Beat on the CLNS Media Network. Find us at clnsmedia.com, and of course, as always, follow us on Twitter, at PatriotsCLNS. We're gearing up fast for the 2019 NFL Draft at the end of this month, April 25th through the 27th in Nashville to be exact. And no team needs to take full advantage of this annual restocking plan more than the New England Patriots. Yes, the Super Bowl 53 defending champs. They need to reload here. They've lost Rob Gronkowski to retirement. Chris Hogan, Cordero Patterson, Trent Brown, and Trey Flowers to free agency, though Chris Hogan still remains unsigned. I should throw that caveat in there. How will they use their 12 picks in the draft to restock and reload? Well, no one better in my estimation to discuss it all than our own NFL expert, Evan Lazar. Follow him on Twitter at EZLazar. That's E-Z-L-A-Z-A-R. And online, of course, at CLNSmedia.com with our Patriots coverage. What up, E? How's it going? I'm doing well. You should be honored that I'm tell, asking you what up, E, because my daughter <laughs> is named Emma, and I, whenever I see her when she gets home from school or I pick her up, I go, what up, E? So you're in, in a very uh, high company there. Is that an Entourage reference? It is, actually. Okay, I, I am a big, uh, big Entourage fa- fan, but uh, that was well before her time, but I explained Entourage <laughs> to Emma. So, yes, the whole what up E is uh, an Entourage uh, reference that I have carried over to uh, modern day. I run into you all the time, by the way, at Celtics games. For those yes. of you who don't know... Evan can be spotted in one of the, I don't know, 58,000 Kyrie Irving number 11 jerseys uh, at the Garden. Sometimes it's the Tatum jersey. It depends on the day. Is that right? Oh, I haven't seen you in a Tatum jersey. Yeah, it rotates when, you know, they lose the game before in the Kyrie jersey. Sometimes I switch it up to the Tatum jersey. But, yeah, I've actually had season tickets to the Celtics uh, since I was in the third grade, so going on 20 years now of having season tickets to the seas and I like to keep my fandom in one spot. So that's, that's where the Celtics come in um, now that I'm you know supposed to be impartial with the Patriots. So, yeah. So you think you've seen enough of Daniel Tice jacking up threes at the end of games? Yeah. Yeah. I'm good with that. Let's just, you know, I think that one of the best parts about the playoffs, you know, on top of it just being awesome for entertainment purposes is that they tend to whittle down the rotation to like seven or eight guys who are your like ride or die guys. 
And that always, you know, is when you really get to know who the team really is when you have a team like the Celtics that you know are going to make the playoffs and have a high ceiling and all that kind of stuff. So let's let's get all of those minutes out of there, maybe matchup based only with Daniel Tyson. No more Daniel Tyson in the last five minutes of games. That that would be nice. Um, before we move on to football, what are your realistic expectations going into the playoffs? For the, my Celtics, I, I, I think they're the first-round win – against Indiana is that I think that that's like something that should be expected out of them right they have home court advantage they have definitely have the talent to be a team that gets out of the first round of the playoffs especially in the Eastern Conference against a team that doesn't have their best player so winning against Indiana I think is a given then the second round I think it it gets starts to get interesting but if they push what it's it's probably going to be what uh uh, Milwaukee in the second round, right? As as long as everything goes, or is it Toronto? Yep. I, I don't remember. But no, Milwaukee. If Milwaukee. they get out of the first round, yeah, then they should they should at least give Milwaukee a series, right? I mean, that should be a six or seven game series. Well, um, look, uh, this is not uh, the Celtics beat podcast with Adam Kaufman, <laughs> but I will tell you, you better have all of your fingers and toes. Uh, cross that, uh, Jason Tatum and Marcus Smart, I know. uh, their contusions, uh, heal up for the playoffs. But I want to move on to football <laughs> now. And, uh, I want to give you some historical perspective. The Patriots reading off their, uh, uh, 2019 NFL draft, uh, uh, data sheet, they hold 12 picks in the 19 NFL draft in Nashville, which is tied with the Giants for the most overall picks this year. Patriots 12 picks are tied for the second half, a second highest draft day compilation for the team. Since the draft was shortened back in 1993, the Patriots drafted 12 players in 09, and believe it or not, they drafted 13 of it in 1996. Do you remember that? I do not. Is that Willie McGinnis's year? Uh, no, I think 94 was Willie McGinnis' okay. year, two years, uh, after that. Six of the, uh, 12, uh, sorry, six of the Patriots' 12 selections are scheduled for the first three rounds. We've been over this before. I know you've talked yep. about this, uh, when you've been on before. Um, so I want to get your impression. How do they handle the first day of the draft? How many trades can we expect? And, uh, how are they going to uh, make use of the uh, six picks over the first two days. Well, we were just talking about it right before we started recording, and I think the biggest thing is, is I actually, you know, kind of just looked at the roster right now of the guys that they have under contract, and they got 67 guys under contract. Obviously, not all those guys are going to make the 53-man roster. But they have 40 guys that are holdovers from the 53-man roster that were active 53-man roster players for Super Bowl 53. Not all those guys were active on game day, but they were all on the active roster. So when you really start to do the numbers of it, the short version here, they don't have a ton of roster spots open, right? I mean, I think it's safe to say if you want to just have a nice round number, uh, they have about 10 roster spots to open for kind of a battle between some of the backups and some of the fringe roster players last year, some of the guys that they've signed to like prove it, tryout type contracts and free agency, right. and then their rookie draft class and the undrafted rookies, which we know they're always going to try to find at least one hidden gem in the uh, UDFA sign 
things that they're going to be able to, you know, come on the team 15 consecutive years of an undrafted rookie making the week one roster. Obviously last year it was JC Jackson. So I think the biggest thing is when you look at this 12 picks plus a undrafted rookie class as well, there's just not enough spots on the team for all those guys. So what does that mean? I think a trade into 2020 is a very good possibility. I know Patriots fans hate to hear that, but I think the biggest thing is, is I kind of look at it two ways. I don't know if sticking at 32, unless there's just a guy that falls into their lap, like maybe a Jerry Tillery from Notre Dame or a Clellan Farrell, who's just so supremely talented that they just can't pass on him in that spot. I, I think that a trade up or a trade down has to happen here because they got to consolidate some of these picks. They're not going to bring in, I just can't imagine them picking chalk with 12 guys and bringing all 12 of them into training camp. They are not the Cincinnati Bengals. They will never do that. Never have, never will. Yeah. Uh, biggest, you tweeted this out here on Monday. The biggest question about this Patriots draft is how aggressive they'll be. Not enough roster spots, as you just mentioned, Evan, for 12 picks and the UD, uh, UDFAs. Uh, consolidate the picks to land top three, top 50 players. And I find this intriguing. Yeah. So you do some of the math that um, I think it was the Dallas Cowboys who came up with the uh, yeah. draft formula back in the what yes. early nineties. It's it's known as the Jimmy Johnson chart, trade value chart. That's right. He's kind of the one that's coined it. Correct. The Jimmy Johnson um, draft value chart. Uh, Patriots hold the number thirty-two and the number seventy-three. You mix those together and you get the number twenty-one, which is high enough to get yourself. Noah Fant from Iowa, one of the two outstanding Iowa tight ends, and that obviously would be uh, with an eye towards replacing Rob Gronkowski. Right, and the interesting thing is is that today Albert Breer reported that Seattle is shopping that 21st overall pick. So that kind of adds some fuel to this fire as well. Even if it's not a guy like Font, that just puts you in a better position to land maybe one of the premier pass rushers in the draft or either one of those Iowa tight ends as well. And really, it's not unheard of for the Patriots to do it. They actually did a version of this exact trade that I proposed on Twitter last night in 2002 when they traded up to draft Daniel Graham. So they actually traded a first, their first round pick, 32nd overall, obviously, because coming right off of the Super Bowl 36 victory. And they traded a later third round pick and they added the seventh round pick because of the difference in the third round picks. And they got the 21st overall pick to move up to snatch Dan Graham, who happens obviously to be a tight end as well. I looked at it and, and I just, thought to myself, you know, what they really need is not necessarily a 12-person draft class where all these guys are going to come in and vie for, you know, back end of the roster spots, you know, wide receiver fours and fives or, you know, uh, guys that in the back end of the defensive line. They need premier talent. They need some blue-chip players, especially on offense, the firepower without Rob Gronkowski there. And, and you know, really all you have is in the passing game is Julian Edelman and the running backs at this point. So you need some firepower there on offense. And then obviously you need to look on the defensive line to replacing Malcolm Brown, to replacing Trey Flowers, of course. So you really what you need is you need like two or three what I call blue chip guys, guys that on Monday and Tuesday when opposing teams are game planning for your offense or your defense, they're circling on the depth chart and they're saying, we got to stop this guy or we got to find a way to scheme and game plan to get this guy slowed down. 
that's what they need. Right now, they don't have any of those guys, um, you know, on offense besides Julian Edelman and, of course, the quarterback. So it really is a kind of a limited passing attack. So uh, the way I proposed it was, you know, you trade up in the first round to get Noah Font or you trade up in the second round from 56, their first second round pick, and you put yourself in the A.J. Brown, Debo Samuel, um, maybe Nikhil Harry, that conversation, uh, J.J. Arcega-Whiteside. Those kind of guys are what we call blue chip players or blue chip prospects that you hope become blue chip players. Speaking with Evan Lazar of uh, CLNSmedia.com, my colleague covering the Patriots, doing a sensational job uh, breaking down not only film but uh, a mock draft for the uh, 2019 NFL Draft at the end of this month uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, you can follow him on Twitter at EZLazar. That's E-Z-L-A-Z-A-R. That's simple. You better do it uh, if you haven't already. Um, you won't get better information than Evan brings you. Uh, you mentioned, guys, that you're going to – you have to start game planning for on Monday. I think uh, you would agree that um, – Dexter Lawrence could be one of those. And in your 2.0 oh, yeah. um, mock draft, uh, if the Patriots stay at 32, and if Jerry Tillery and Clellan Farrell, uh, two really pure pass rushers, are gone, then you make an interesting case for Dexter Lawrence out of Clemson, a 340-pound defensive tackle that you compare to... Will Forkian. He is Will Forkian. Yeah, Vince Will Fork. Obviously, I, I don't love doing that because Bill Belichick called Vince Wilfork the best defensive lineman he's ever coached. So that's obviously putting Vince in, in some pretty high regard when you talk about some of the guys that Belichick has coached over the years. So I, it, you don't ever want to, you know, kind of up those types of expectations. But I will say that for Dexter, he's certainly the fastest or lightest 300 300- 45 pound guy on his feet that I've seen in a long time. You know, he doesn't have the feet or the foot quickness of a true, you know, nose tackle guy. He's really a little bit lighter than that. And he's also just ultra intimidating power in the run game, especially his, his run defense. So I think that he's very similar to Vince Wilfork in those regards. And he can do some of the similar things where, you know, you clog up the lane in the middle against the run. You really use some of that power, especially when they do single block you to really push the pocket overall. And you maybe attract a, a team or a herd of the, of offensive linemen to Dexter Lawrence, two or three guys at a time because of that power to block him in the run game especially that leaves some of the linebackers some of the other guys uncovered to come down and make the tackles and actually make the plays which is what we know Vince did for a decade here in New England where he wasn't necessarily loading up on tackles and tackles for loss but everybody else was doing it for him because he was taking up the blockers or eating up the blockers as they say so I think that Lawrence the Patriots are one of a few teams you know there are some teams but they're one of a few teams or a handful of teams, I would say, that really still uh, find the value in a prototypical nose tackle, right? Like a guy that is 340 pounds that isn't going to necessarily beat you with some nuanced rush moves and isn't going to be spinning anytime soon or doing anything jab steps or anything crazy like that, but he's going to push the pocket and he's going to absolutely stop the run. And they tried that with Danny Shelton last year, really didn't work out the way that they had hoped. Malcolm Brown, I think is kind of like a poor man's Dexter Lawrence. They wanted him to be that player, but he never really developed into that player. So I'm hoping, you know, I think the hope for the Patriots would be that 
other teams are going to kind of prioritize the guys with pass rushing skill sets ahead of Dexter Lawrence, and he ends up falling to the end of the first round because he's certainly a top 20 or so talent in this draft, I would say. But because of the way that the position is viewed now, you're talking about guys that are a lot lighter and a lot quicker. Guys like Aaron Donald is like kind of now the poster child, right, for the defensive tackles and for right. the for the guys that play on the interior, and that's just not who Dexter Lawrence is. Dexter Lawrence is much more in that Danny Shelton, Vita Vea type mold, which hasn't always worked out for NFL teams in the first round over the last handful of years since the league really started to become a passing league. Any character issues with Dexter Lawrence? We all know how his college career ended and uh, not being able to play in the final game. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be the question in the interviews, right? You know, that he's going to have to answer, and it's going to probably be one of the first questions that most teams ask him. And, you know, really, it's not necessarily what you find out from Dexter himself. It's actually going above and beyond that and digging into his background from the people that are around him all the time, his coach, old coaching staff, his friends, his family, that kind of stuff. I don't think that it's a huge issue. I think that it's kind of similar. You know, like, we didn't knock Julian Edelman's character because he got nicked for some substance that he didn't necessarily know or claimed he didn't necessarily know. So I think that's kind of the same thing here with Dexter Lawrence where, you know, he claims he didn't have any idea what it was. It was something that I think Clemson ended up taking responsibility for as well as something that they accidentally, you know, slipped into one of his uh, workout regimen, you know, kind of, you know, stuff that they give those guys to, to bulk up and stuff like that. So I wouldn't worry too much about it, although, you know, obviously you do have to look into stuff like that. Sure. Um, now I'm going to move on to a um, your second round, 56 overall pick. If the Patriots keep chalk and, and hold on to that pick, this is yeah. a wide receiver that I don't know. Um, certainly, those who those fans of the draft are going to know this name, but I don't know how many casual Patriot fans because this player played on the West Coast in the Pac-12. Yeah. You know who I'm talking about? J.J. Arcega, Whiteside. What can you tell us about him and why would he potentially be a fit in the Patriots system? Well, I think that the first two things that stand out with me with Arkega Whiteside is he has a pretty rare combination of straight line speed and size. He's a big guy, uh, 6'2", 6'3", 225 pounds, and he just ran a sub 4'6". I think it was about a 4'5'8", or something like that, at his pro day in Stanford. So that's moving for a guy that's 225 pounds. That's great about him. The other thing that's great about him is that he is an absolute red zone monster. He's had 18 red zone touchdowns in the last two years at Stanford, and they lost a guy by the name of Rob Gronkowski, who was pretty much their, you know, kind of over the years, certainly not last year, but over the years of his career was kind of their red zone, you know, kryptonite to any defense in the red zone. So that adds that element back into it for the Patriots with Arkega Whites. I think the one thing that's underrated, he kind of gets labeled by a lot of people as that red zone monster as a box out jump ball type specialist is that his footwork and route releases at the line of scrimmage are actually quite good and really underrated aspect of his game he has a whole lot of uh, fakes and different jab steps and shoulder fakes that he throws at defensive backs that are trying to press cover him because he is usually out on the perimeter where he's going to see a lot of press coverage he is a prototypical x receiver for patriots fans to make an easier kind of translation that's the role that josh gordon played when he was healthier he was on the field i should say before he you know stepped away from football that x receiver role 
I think the biggest thing with the Patriots receivers that makes it so difficult to mock these guys to the Patriots is that you gotta, it's not just that you have to be able to play, you also have to be able to get on the same page as Tom Brady. And I think that over the years, what I've realized just kind of studying their draft habits and seeing what's worked and hasn't is that you really need a guy that kind of has a savvy to him, has that football IQ, but also has some college production to lean on. So you're not just kind of projecting a guy. You actually can see what he did in college. And that's what I like about Arkega Whiteside. Over the years, they've drafted guys like Aaron Dobson and Chad Jackson and so on and so forth that have been high-priced prospects guys that they certainly haven't necessarily reached on, but that you've been projecting a ton with their production because they weren't like overly productive in college where they had these huge individual seasons. So I'm looking for them to do something like that. A guy that has a little bit of cloud to him, a little bit of proven ability because it's tough to get on the same page as Tom Brady. We know that. Uh, that is for sure. And I'm going to stick with the tight end with the, with another second round pick, the 64th overall I think everybody knows uh, about the two Iowa tight ends and Irv Smith yep. out of Alabama. Correct. You suggest uh, Jay Sternberger out of Texas A&M. And what's interesting, yeah, and what's interesting to me uh, about this mock, um, Evan, is that uh, he does some things that Irv Smith maybe doesn't or not as – that Irv Smith may be not able to do as well as Sternberger does. Right, so Irv Smith is a really, I really like Irv Smith. I have him graded out higher than I have Jay Sternberg. He's a better all-around prospect. He certainly blocks in line a whole lot better than Sternberger does. And he's a good receiver, but he doesn't have quite the explosiveness and the big playability as a receiver that Jay Sternberger has. Jay Sternberger was an absolute terror up the seam at Texas A&M. I mean, nobody in college football could hang with this guy on seam routes up the middle of the field. He had, I think it was something like 20 catches or 21 catches of 20 or more yards last year to leave the entire FBS. He's a big play machine. He's great after the catch. Some of the plays that I've tweeted out of him just dragging defenders down the field and stuff like that. He's just a little bit more dynamic and a little bit more explosive as a pass catcher. I think really, if you look at this entire class of tight ends, he has as much receiving upside as any of these guys. Um, you know, really, even as any of the guys, uh, I would say that as the Iowa guys, maybe besides Noah Font, who has, you know, just that athletic ability is off the charts. But Jay Sternberger is really a guy that I think wins in his routes very similarly to how the Patriots like to use their tight ends uh, up the seams, uh, stretching the field vertically in the slot and in from an inline position where you're not really expecting it to be stretched. You know, a lot of offenses mostly work from the perimeter and up the field, whereas the Patriots tend to like to stretch the field horizontally and vertically up the seams and up the slot. That's the type of guy that Sternberger can really be for them, and that's why I like him so much for them. I think he can develop as a blocker. It's not that he's not a small guy by any means, 6'4", 225 pounds. 240 pounds, something like that. So he can definitely develop as a blocker. It's just not all there right now in a little bit coaching. I think that he could get there as a be an adequate in inline blocker. He's certainly not going to be the impact blocker that Rob Gronkowski was. But I think the biggest thing when you look for the Patriots with a tight end in this draft, a lot of people are kind of fixated to me on replacing everything that Rob Gronkowski did with one player. A guy that can do it all like Gronk did. You block, can't do catch, that. 
Right, and you can't do that. So I think the biggest thing is is that you got to take the best player that fits you the best, and then you adapt the offense to what he does, and not you're not adapt you're not going to bring in a player to adapt to what Gronk did. You got to adapt around that new guy. So I think that that's the biggest thing that I see with a guy that maybe doesn't have the blocking upside as someone like a T.J. Hawkinson or an Irv Smith. So the Patriots depth chart at tight end right now is Jacob Hollister, Stephen Anderson. Yeah. Matt Lacoste and Ryan Izzo. There's got to be an upgrade there through the draft. Yeah, I think Lacoste has a pretty good chance of making the roster just based off of the money that they gave him. It's not a ton of money by any means, but he has $500,000 guaranteed, and which means a $500,000 dead cap hit if they do cut him. It's certainly manageable if they decide that he shouldn't make the roster. But One of those a- prove-it players that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah, but it's enough money. Like, for example, uh, Bruce Ellington and Maurice Harris have zero guaranteed dollars on their contracts and can be cut for nothing. So that they're true tryout players, whereas I think Lacoste is kind of a guy that they view as maybe like a tight end three or a tight end two already and, and has some upside to make the roster. I really like Ryan Izzo, too. He's certainly like kind of like what Dwayne Allen was for them last year, just a solely a blocking type tight end. But he, I think he could really come in and replace a lot of the stuff that Allen did as a blocker. So I think that those two guys have a pretty good chance to make the roster. But obviously we're talking about uh, guys that are, you know, back-end depth type players. They need a guy that's, just, you know, their number one or really a factor in the passing game. Spoke with Inside the Pylons, Mark Schofield last week, uh, former uh, college quarterback himself, as a matter of fact, at Wesley. Mm-hmm. And the name Brett Rippon came up. Uh, the nephew of Mark Rippon, the former uh, Red St- uh, Redskins uh, Super Bowl winning quarterback. And uh, Brett, of course, uh, is a star at Boise State. And you mock him. Um, what do you like about Brett Rippon and why would that make sense for the Patriots? Well, I think the main thing that I like about him that I think a lot of people like about him is that his processing speed and mental side of the game is really pretty far along and probably uh, one of the better mental processors in this class the way how quickly he gets through his progressions is pretty great and the ability to get through those progressions so quickly allows what happens a lot of time with Tom Brady is that he gets through those progressions so fast that he's getting the ball out on time and he's setting up his receivers to gain yards after the catch because he's getting the ball in their hands so quickly before the defense is really prepared for them to get the football so that's a big part of it the other part of it that I really like from Ripon is his footwork and everything that happens below the waist he has some of the best throwing mechanics of any quarterback in this class his arm slot is a little bit low but other than that he really is a fantastic um, in terms of his footwork and is really a nice strong and sturdy base when he throws the football which helps him really drive the ball down the field because he's not a very big guy he's only uh, six foot one in a little bit and around 215 pounds he is about the same size as Baker Mayfield now I'm not comparing them as prospects, but just from a measurable standpoint for kind of an eye reference, that's kind of the same size that Ripon is. So he's certainly not small to the point where it's detrimental. Um, it's, he wasn't in that small category with like Kyler Murray, for example, who is, all, you know, the talk of the draft in terms of his size. So I think that's a lot of things that you like about Ripon and his ability to throw under pressure and just throw 
downfield dimes with pretty great accuracy under pressure is uh, also very intriguing. He just does a lot of things in the game that are very Patriot-esque, and he also did a lot of things that the Patriots like to do in terms of his versatility of being able to snap the ball from under center or shotgun or pistol. He did it all at Boise State. It's very rare nowadays, as I'm sure you know, Travis, from watching college football, that you get a quarterback under center. And oh, that he absolutely. actually has a, to I, take a snap under center and turn his back to the defense and run a play action pass from under center. It like doesn't happen. No. Anymore. <laughs> and Ripon did that a ton at Boise State. And as we know with Brady, that's a huge part of the Patriots offense is being able to do that. So I think that a lot of the kind of the things that we've learned over the last couple of years with guys like Russell Wilson and Baker and now Kyler Murray is that size might be a little bit overrated for quarterbacks and, uh, and, you know, maybe something that's kind of like an old school scouting thing that maybe we can move past now that we've seen it work with guys that aren't necessarily the six foot four, six foot five guys with huge arms. So. I hope that they like Ripon. I think that Will Greer and Ryan Finley are also two very big possibilities if they do quarterback as well. Speaking with Evan Lazar, you can follow him on Twitter at E-Z-L-A-Z-A-R. Obviously, follow him on CLNSmedia.com. I think his mock draft is as good as any you will find out there online, and that's saying a lot considering how many mock drafts there are at this time of year for uh, the NFL draft. The thing I love about your mock drafts, Evan, is you have video pretty much with every single uh, pick through, I think, what, a, the sixth rounds? First six yep. rounds, you have uh, video uh, of the particular player there's no way though the patriots are taking all 12 making all 12 picks right i mean that's just not going to happen no and it's not going to happen and and i i think that you know there's three avenues that i'm going to kind of lay out in the column here in the next couple of days that they could go with it and they're pretty obvious but the first one is obviously to kind of consolidate and add all their assets together to move up in the draft uh to a pick like 21 where seattle's going to be picking or even up in the second round to get back into the top 50 to grab somebody there that they like there's the option of trading into the 2020 draft. They have, I think it's right now, seven or eight picks. There's a condition on the Jordan Richards pick that they got for a seventh rounder from Atlanta, but we don't need to get into that. But right now they only have their own selections in the first four rounds next year. Now they're going to get the comp picks for Trey Flowers and Trent Brown and all those guys as well, like they did this year for the guys that they lost last year. So they're going to have some back end of the third round uh, picks like they do this year, again next year, but they could obviously be looking to push some of these picks into next year as well. And then the third avenue is what I call the Belichick special, which is shopping some of these picks for veterans, right, in doing those pick swaps that he loves to do where he gets guys like Jason McCourty or Dwayne Allen or whatever the case may be, and he gets somebody like that. So really you're shrinking the size of the actual draft class, but you're adding a player with a pick anyway. So that's really not, for the numbers sake of it, that's really not doing them too much good. Obviously it's a good problem to have, right? Like you want all the talent on the roster that you can possibly get but I just think from my perspective it just makes a whole lot more sense to go after three or four guys at the top of the draft that they absolutely love that they think can really come in here and make a huge impact not only immediately but for the next four or five years and beyond hopefully than it does to kind of just pick 
guys at random throughout the entire course of the draft just to pick guys. So I think that that's obvious, you know, not the best approach. So I think that the main thing is, is that in this draft, they have the ammo to be aggressive and to really control this draft, especially in the second and third rounds. I just hope that Bill Belichick goes out and does it because sometimes he can be a little bit passive in the draft. We know that, right? You know, or sometimes where, you know, he just kind of does his thing and picks his guys that, you know, he fall to him and whatnot and goes from there. But this year, I think they really have a chance to dictate the terms and go out and really hunt players that they want to target because they have all this ammunition. I just also think there's a little more urgency go, going into this draft for the Patriots than in years past. Not because they're, you know, going to struggle next year on the field per se, but I think their depth is a little bit more uh, exposed uh, as a potential weakness this year. Um, certainly with the losses of some frontline players like Trey Flowers, uh, Gronk, and even Trent Brown. And I know Isaiah Wynn's going to uh, be projected as stepping up and, and slotting into that position right away. And if he's healthy, they should be fine. But they lost a lot of frontline talent. And I don't think it's an assumption, it shouldn't be an assumption, that everybody that they slot in is going to fit in seamlessly. I want to get to some quick reactions here. I'm going to give you some thoughts. And uh, it's kind of kind of be a uh, rapid-fire segment here. Evan, first of all, Josh Gordon, what's the deal? And are the Patriots uh, waiting for the NFL to reinstate him? Yeah, that's an interesting one because he's, he's giving off vibes like he's going to play next year, right? Like he's working out and tweeting at the Patriots and at Tom Brady, and he's very involved, it seems like, on social media. I think that the Patriots and Josh Gordon are working under the assumption that he's going to be on the field at some point next year. I don't know if it's going to be week one, but I don't think this indefinite suspension that he's facing is as uh, looming as like a year-long ban or anything like that as people might think. And I also think that there are some rumblings that – Josh Gordon actually took himself off the field and he didn't actually fail any drug tests or anything like that, but it was more just a mental health type thing that he felt himself going down a bad road. And that kind of adds up to some of the ways that it kind of all went down when it, how it did right. um, with him announcing it first and getting out in front of it and all that kind of stuff. And there was never really any confirmation of him failing a drug test. So I think that it's not necessarily going to be some big suspension. And I think that the Patriots and Josh Gordon are kind of hoping that he's going to play next year. And what about Steven Guskowski? I find this fascinating. Uh, why hasn't he found a new deal yet? Yeah, well, I think that the interesting thing for Goskowski is that the Patriots kind of have him in a little bit of a corner here because the rest of the league has a kicker, you know? Like, this isn't really like a job in the NFL where, you know, you need more than one guy on the roster to do it. So the other 31 teams have a kicker, then, you know, you're really kind of backed into a corner if you're Steven Goskowski. If you want to kick next year, it's going to have to be with the Patriots or you're going to have to wait it out and see if somebody gets hurt in season and needs a replacement. I think the Patriots figure this I think they get it done. They have plenty of cap space now to get it done. So there's really no reason to, you know, really mess with it. I know that there's a guy from LSU, Cole Tracy, who is a pretty good college kicker that some people might think um, the Patriots might draft and kind of do what they did with Vinatieri to, to Goskowski. But I really think that the best case scenario for both sides is that he's kicking with the Patriots next year. And Braxton Berrios. So this one's really interesting because – what do the Patriots think of Braxton Berrios, right? Because that really changes a Huge whole lot question. of things 
about this draft for them, uh, especially I wouldn't say at the top because I don't think that Berrios is necessarily the guy that they think is going to come in and uh, you know replace a guy a guy's production like a Rob Gronkowski or something like that and be like a stud number one receiver. But if they really like Berrios and they don't need to double dip at wide receiver as urgently as maybe some mocks or some people are suggesting so that I think is like the biggest question I like Berrios a lot I think his tape is really good he's not as good of a prospect as Andy Isabella or Hunter Renfro but he's kind of in that next category or that next notch below I think you know all along I've been saying with Berrios that his comp is not Julian Edelman it's Danny Amendola that's the type of career that I think that Berrios can have not He's not ever going to be a Super Bowl MVP, Pro Bowl caliber receiver, I don't think. But he's going to be a guy like Danny Amendola who can be extremely reliable, have his big games here or there, uh, and hopefully step up in some clutch moments and maybe return some punts and do some stuff like that too. It would be hilarious if Andy Isabella wound up with the Patriots. (laughs) Yeah, him and Hunter Renfro are, you know, they're prototypical Patriots type guys. Although I think Isabella is a little bit different than some, you know, he's not just a little bit. He's a lot different than a Julian Edelman or Wes Welker or one of those guys or even a Hunter Renfro. He is really a deep threat. He's a down-the-field receiver. He reminds me a whole lot more of, like, a T.Y. Hilton or a Brandon Cooks than he does a, you know, a Julian Edelman. So it's a, it's not exactly the as same a fit as, like, a Hunter Renfro would be. But, yeah, I mean, that's it's a nice marriage nonetheless. This uh, covered a lot of ground, and you can uh, get even more detail if you go to clnsmedia.com and follow uh, Evan Lazar's outstanding coverage uh his mock drafts and his uh breakdown his analysis and also his column coming up on exactly how the patriots uh should not only think about 2019 at the end of this month in the nfl draft but trade into 2020 uh evan has just been crushing it uh ever since he joined clns media uh last summer it's just been a joy he's been awesome to work with and i want to thank everybody for downloading today's podcast evan i want to thank you for uh, joining us and uh, i'm sure you'll be busy in the next couple of weeks of course yeah you're too kind i uh yes very busy got belichick on wednesday he's talking for the first time really um about the draft specifically he talked at the owners meetings but that's like a little bit of a different forum so uh, a full uh, belichick press conference on wednesday and then yeah i mean two weeks from thursday right is is the first round so it's it's crazy all the preparation really since the end of the super bowl uh but i gave myself about a week and then it was right into it and the combine was is you know a short few short weeks after the super bowl now so it's it's kind of all um coming along here and it's going to be great you know in, in a couple of weeks two and a half weeks two weeks we're gonna kind of know what the roster is really going to look like for 2019 Look forward to uh, joining you, Evan and Alex and Sierra Goodwill. All will have complete CLNS media team coverage down at Gillette Stadium uh, April 25th through the 27th. Again, follow uh, Evan on Twitter at E-Z-L-A-Z-A-R and his must-read prep work on our site, clnsmedia.com. For producer Mike Alonji and the founder of the network, Nick Gelso, This is Mike Petralia, and this has been the Patriots Beat Podcast, powered by CLNS Media.
Hello, I'm Dan Lothian, host of the Behind the Media podcast on the CLNS Media Network. Along with Jimmy Young, we dive into the biggest media headlines each week with honest, informed, and sometimes irreverent perspectives. It's not all serious. We deliver information and entertainment. As we like to say on Behind the Media, we find the interesting in media so you don't have to go searching for it. Listen to our podcast and get prepped for the next trip to the water cooler. Subscribe to Behind the Media wherever you get your podcasts or find us on www.clnsmedia.com.